Thanks, guys, very much. I was so excited to preach. I, I came up with a song early. Hey, speaking of which, I would love for you to open up a Bible to join me. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to uh, use one in a seat rack in front of you. Uh, we're going to do on Christmas Eve morning what we do every Sunday. We're going to try to open up God's Word and hear what He has to say to us. And so I'm in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way into the Bible, if you need to find it. Uh, we're going to look at somewhat familiar story and then press a little farther into the text. Uh, this morning, we really wanted to take Christmas Eve morning and celebrate and to be loud and to sing praise. I invite you to come back this evening as we for a Christmas Eve service. It'll be a little more contemplative, a little more subdued, and we'll light some candles and think again on uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, coming to earth as a man to live and to die for his people. Uh, let me begin our time by reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, my prayer for us right now is that you would help us to understand this text and the truths behind it uh, in new light, uh, and in particularly how they apply to our lives today. Who is this Jesus 2,000 years Later, what has he accomplished and why does it matter? Help us to understand these things and then apply them to our lives for your sake and your glory, we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you caught that in just the first three verses, but Magi, that is some sort of Eastern astrologers with some uh, maybe some royal power, they see something uh, in the sky. We'll get to that in a bit. And it leads them to travel hundreds of miles to Jerusalem. 
They go into the throne of a king and they say to him, where is the king? Like, you don't need to know anything outside the Bible to know that whoever has been born is in trouble. Where's the real king? Some of you guys saw the lying king. As soon as Simba was held up, right, Scar was not happy. Right, or the moment the, the, the evil stepmother heard from the mirror that she was no longer the fairest in the land, there was trouble. So we read this Christmas story, a familiar Christmas story, but we don't realize in the first two to three verses that the baby to be born is in trouble. But I, I want to, again, I want us to think about this in our lives. And so uh, just to give you a little insight into the heart of your pastor, um, I didn't like Ryan Coppice. The reason why I didn't like Ryan Coppice is because he was the best golfer in Indianola High School. And that's why I didn't like him. He was a year ahead of me in school. Um, and I was insecure. I was petty. I was jealous. And so from the moment that Ryan Coppice existed, I didn't like him. Now, in retrospect, you go back to that and realize I missed out on a friendship with a, a very you know, normal high school person. I, I missed out on a teammate. I missed out on a potential mentor to help me get better. But I just didn't like him because he was better. Um, because there was this, I felt this threat, right? If he's the best golfer, then I'm not. Well, at a much more heart level, right, all the things that I missed out on with Ryan because of my jealousy and my refusal to even show amount of respect, uh, I lost a friend. Now, in the case of Jesus Christ, there, the, the consequences are far greater, right? Um, here's, here's an idea. If he's the king, I don't get to be king anymore. That's what Herod faced, if he's the king, I don't get to be king anymore. And that's true for your life, my life. If he's the king, I don't get to be king anymore. And so let's look at what Matthew chapter 2 has to say about Jesus being the king. Uh, in fact, these first kind of 12 verses are, are kind of like a one-two punch uh, to Herod. <laughs> You're not the real king. You guys know what a one-two punch is, right? That in boxing, you know, you might do like a left uppercut and then come across with like a right hook. And hopefully if both those punches land, the guy gets knocked to the mat. Well, Herod has a one-two punch in the first 12 verses that expose him as a false king. The first one's actually quite surprising. You have, <laughs> you have like religious outsiders from a faraway land, from a different country, showing up to the promised land of Israel, to the throne room of Jerusalem, and they're saying, hey, where's the real king? So he's getting exposed by these religious outsiders. And uh, just one of the things that's really interesting is like, what brought them there? Right? It doesn't sound like what brought them there was reading the Bible. It, it, there's no normal pattern of maybe religious pursuit. They are some sort of like 
Eastern uh, astrologers. Um, these are the these. Are, this is like the traveling caravan type people who you know read your fortune. But something happens in the sky, and they they. It's so unique, never before seen, that they move in the direction of Israel, right? And so three, four, five hundred miles probably happened in Babylon or Persia, and they head in the direction of Israel. Why did they do it? Well, no one knows for sure, uh, but there's actually a possible physical explanation. And I'll just share this because I think it's one of the more interesting things. Uh, Some of you have maybe heard of uh, the Pisces constellation. I think we have a picture here in a second. Um, on occasion, uh, within the Pisces constellation, both Jupiter and Saturn will show up. And it's called the Great Conjunction. It's kind of fascinating. And this happens about once every 20 years or so that Jupiter and Saturn will be within Pisces. Uh, and back then, uh, scholars will tell us that Jupiter was known as the royal planet. And over time, Israel actually had been connected with uh, the planet Saturn, and some people refer to the, the Pisces, the fish constellation related to water. So we see Jupiter, we see Saturn, we think of the sea, we think of water, we move toward the Mediterranean. Well, it happens once every 20 years normally, but actually uh, around 7 BC, it happened three times in the same year. And that happens once every thousand years. And so some scholars speculate, well, the first time they saw it, well, that's interesting. That was on May 29th. Then when the second time it showed up on October 3rd, they're like, whoa. That's once in a lifetime. And then when it showed up again on December 4th, they're like, we should go see what this is about. Now that's cool that there could be a scientific explanation. Uh, It's just as likely this was a single, never repeatable, miraculous event caused by the sovereign God of the universe. But it caused these religious outsiders to show up in the promised land, to go to the throne room to the king and say, where's the newborn king? Where's the, where's the real king? Now, that's the first punch. Now, the second punch is from the religious insiders. So the religious outsiders, they kind of say, where's the king? And then Herod's a little bit disturbed. Maybe you ca- caught that in verse 3. If you're a religious, or excuse me, if you're a royal usurper, and someone says, where's the real king? That's disturbing. And if you're a hangers-on, like if you're hanging on Herod for your sense of power, you're disturbed too. And that's exactly what the text said. He was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And so then it says, he calls in the religious insiders and says, hey, give me the chief priests. Give me the teachers of the law. Like, give me the, 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 the Jewish people who know the truth on this matter because he's trying to legitimize himself. Um, by the way, in theory, he's the legitimate king in this sense. He's actually not a full, full-blooded Jew. But what he did is he crawled to Rome in 40 BC, and he asked for the throne, and they gave it to him. So he actually knows he's a usurper. <laughs> when, he, when he got back to Jerusalem, by the way, he wiped out anybody left in the other dynasty. That's this man. And so he goes to the religious insiders and he says, okay, hey, where's the king? Where's the Messiah? Where's he supposed to be born? Uh, He doesn't get the news that he wants because he says, well, this is actually what the Old Testament says. This is the prophecy. Uh, He's going to be born in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. 
And that even though it's, it's kind of this uh, not Jerusalem, it's off the beaten path, it says, you by no means, Bethlehem, will be least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the second punch. The religious outsiders say, where's the king? The religious insiders say, it's not you. It's the one born in Bethlehem. And so this man is exposed as a false king. Now, by the way, this is not surprising to God at all. He actually prophesied this whole event to occur in another prophet, in the prophet Isaiah. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. The prophet Isaiah, written uh, 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, the prophet said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. So we have a shining, rising light. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your lights, and kings to the brightness of your dawn, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Now, Herod didn't expect this, but God planned it long ago. And so that the punch number one, punch number two. And you can see why Herod might be shaking in his booties and why he sounds really sneaky, right? He says to these magi, hey, you go, you pay homage, come back, tell me where he is, right? And the Magi head out. They, they, they don't know Herod's character. They, they think that maybe he really means it. That false king is exposed. Uh, good thing, though, he's not just exposed. He's also going to get outwitted. And that's the next section. I'm going to keep reading. Uh, it says when they had gone, so they, the Magi had gone. It says this is after they had gone and they'd um, given the gifts. They adored Jesus. They would sacrificially honored him. They were given a dream to uh, to get out of Dodge and don't go back to Herod. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord also appeared to Joseph in a dream. He says, get up, he said, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So the false king was exposed. The true king gets adored. Then the false king gets outwitted by these magi. And you see the Lord preserving, protecting his son and getting him out of Bethlehem before Herod does what Herod does so well. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the magi, he was furious He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what he said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Killing is nothing new for Herod. I mentioned that he had killed off the previous dynasty when he had taken the reigns. Another time he killed three dozen of the Jewish court called the Sanhedrin. He murdered 300 court officers on another occasion. Toward the end of his life, he went even more crazy, killed off a wife, a mother-in-law, and two sons. 
And so you can see why Herod has no problem dispatching some soldiers to kill, you know, 15 to 20 boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. That's nothing to him. And yet, God protects his son. Now, in this, in this in no way, I want to catch this, in no way devalues the sad loss of life Herod took that day. Herod is villainous. It's a horror to take the life of children. And Herod is just willing to dispense lives at any point to try to hold on to his power. This is why Matthew actually quotes from the prophet Jeremiah this time. Rachel, who is known as the mother of Israel, she weeps over all lost children. And yet in the middle of that dark day, God's son, the Savior, he presses on. The true king is still alive. Let me just read to you how chapter 2 ends. Because it says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream again to Joseph. This time in Egypt, he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in the place where his father Herod had, he was afraid to go there. So having been warned in a dream, he withdrew the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So just in chapter 2 alone, a couple of things happened. We mentioned this. The false king is exposed. The true king is adored. The false king gets outwitted. The true king is protected. And then here at the end, the false king, he expires. He's dead. Herod dies. But the true king, Jesus the Christ, he perseveres. Are you guys familiar with how the Grimm brothers ended the the story of Snow White? Not the Disney version. Are you familiar with how the Grimm brothers, who wrote the story? So, similar to uh, Disney... Uh, Snow White eats the poisoned apple, and she she dies. And then that evil uh, stepmother, she goes back home. She confirms with the mirror that she is once again the fairest in the land. And yes, the prince comes, and he sees Snow White in that coffin, and his heart goes out to her, and he commands his soldiers, let's take her, let's take her forever with me. And it, when they pick up the coffin, like it dislodges the poisoned apple from her mouth, and it comes out, and she revives. But what happens next is fine, because the prince then takes Snow White back to his castle, and they plan a wedding, and they send out invitations across the land to come to the wedding, of which the stepmother receives an invitation. And so she comes to the wedding, and right before she goes to the wedding, she gets all gussied up. She's looking good to attend this wedding, because she doesn't know who the bride is. It's just a bride-to-be. And she turns to the mirror, and she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this land is fairest of all? And the mirror answered, you, my queen, are fair, it is true. But the young queen to be married is a thousand times fairer than you. And she's, she's struck. Like, what? Who is this person being married? Who could be fairer than me? Well, she feels like she has to go and see this beauty. And, of course, she comes out and she sees it's Snow White alive and quite well. And then the prince orders the woman to be shackled. 
forced to wear red hot shoes that had been heated in a fire. She is forced to tan- she is forced to dance, and then eventually she drops dead. And they lived happily ever after. Modern people do not like the harshness of classic fairy tales. But let me to assure you, in many ways, the biblical storyline is much more like this. Herod clung to his crown and God cut him down. The wicked man would not leave his throne but the Son of God still shown, right? I mean, this is what happens to anyone who tries to cling to their life as king in defiance of the true king. Remember, if Jesus is king, I don't get to be in charge anymore. Now, when people are walking up to God, when they're reading the Bible, when they're considering, like, Do I want to be a follower of God? Do I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Almost always something comes to their conscience. Even that I have to give up? Or sometimes it doesn't come to their mind. Jesus points it out. Maybe you're familiar with a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, keep the commands. Obey the Lord. Love him. Obey him. And the young man's like, oh, I've done all that. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing then you need to do. I need you to sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Let me assure you that if you are getting close to Jesus, he will bring up the one thing that you're like, even that? I have to surrender that? That relationship, that desire, that want, that wealth, even that? Yes, because if Jesus is king, I don't get to be king anymore. We could hold on to it. But Jesus says, what, is it, you know, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? One of, one of the most repeated phrases in the Bible is, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the things that's so beautiful about this Matthew chapter 2 is though, though, though Herod is overthrown, a bunch of people that shouldn't get God get him. Like, I mean, if you could pick people, who doesn't get God? A bunch of weird people from Persia who worship the stars. And yet they experience the joy of adoring and bowing before Jesus. And so there's, there's kind of this double testimony in Matthew chapter 2. For those who feel that they're outsiders, that they don't deserve a place at the kingdom of God, there is this open welcome that Jesus Christ offers to the outsiders. But the one who wants to, you know, have prerogative and position and power and is unwilling to yield, that one is cut down. Every time I read Matthew chapter chapter 2, I can't help but think about uh, that first book in the, Lion, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is why. Uh, this, is, this is my wife's favorite Easter movie. It's also a good Christmas movie. 
But those of you who don't know, that story begins in Narnia that there is this gigantic curse by the White Witch that it is always winter but never Christmas. It's, they're, they're, the whole land is trapped in cold and despair. But then a rumor happens. There's a rumor in Narnia that the king is on the move. The king is on the move. Aslan's on the move. Now, it's just a rumor. It's still cold. It's still dark. You can still see the queen, the evil queen, riding her sleigh around Narnia. But is it true? Well, there's this wonderful scene early in the book when the human children are struggling to escape. They're being chased by wolves. Do you know who comes to their rescue? The red fox. He stands in front of the wolves. He throws himself in front of them to protect the children, to throw the wolves off their trail. But who is the red fox? For a time, the red fox had been following the white witch. That's why the wolves call him a traitor now. How dare you? But he believed the good news that the king was on the move. And so the red fox, like all the good Narnian animals who trust in the king, they, he experiences the victory at the end of the book. Right? C.S. Lewis' book is an allegory just simply retelling the Christian story. Jesus enters the scene in first century Bethlehem. He is the king on the move. And King Herod couldn't stop him. Others along the way, they couldn't thwart him. But something happens that's quite wild at the end of Jesus' life. He does make his way to Jerusalem. But he doesn't go to fight for the throne. He doesn't go to storm the castle. Remember, Herod clung to his, he clung to his crown and God threw him down. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he lays down his life. In fact, in a, in a spirit of mockery, it says the soldiers put a, a crown of thorns on his head and they, they wrap him in a, a purple robe and they mock him. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. And he takes beating. He's arrested. Uh, eventually, they, they, they crucify him. They throw him up to die. And when he's dying, you know what happens to the land? It's utter darkness. God's star is snuffed out. And it's there that Jesus buys our salvation. It is there where all of the wicked tyrants are offered clemency. If you bow before the king like this, you will live forever. If you see that this is utter beauty and utter, utter glory, that the king would die for his people and you put your life in his hand, you will live forever. But if you won't bow, You'll never live. Just like Herod, you'll get chopped down. Jesus took the cross before the crown. Three days later, Resurrection Sunday, he rises again triumphantly. God says, I am pleased with my son. This is the true king. He is the king who will never, ever die. He will reign on the throne of David forever and ever. Come and put your hope in him. I read recently that Charles Barkley, who used to play basketball, now he's a basketball commentator. One time he was watching the NBA playoffs and he says this. He says, the stars can at any time meet the requirements needed to help the team win. But just the support players can sometimes do that. Friends, like we're all support players at best. 
Like, we can't win the game. Right? That's the story of Jesus. He came to win the game we couldn't win. To live the life we should have lived and then die the death that we deserved. And so on this Christmas, let me just say to you who are Christians, rejoice. Right? But like the wise men, give him gifts. Give him your praise. Give him your honor. Give him your giving. Give him everything. Don't hold back anything. Lay down your crown. Lay down your kingdom. Give Jesus your scepter. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, same idea. Give him your scepter. I don't know what the scepter is in your life, but there's something that symbolizes like this is mine. That too. You lay that down. This is yours, Jesus, rightfully yours because of who you are and what Jesus has done. If we go back to basketball, it's like give Jesus the ball. Give him the ball. Give him the scepter. Let me just close with the the full prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to the prophetic word that is fulfilled in Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. Micah 5, 2 through 4 reads this way. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you uh, once again to come and realize uh, who King Jesus really is. Thank you that we have a king like Jesus and not a king like Herod. We thank you for a king who would lay down his life for his people, a king who would uh, procure forgiveness by his blood, extend forgiveness with a word of promise, and that all who believe can have life in his name. There is no greater news. And so we thank you to come around again this Christmas season, and thank you, Father God, for sending us your Son. We sing your praise and your glory. We thank you even now that we can remember your Son in the meal that he has left us. In Jesus' name, amen.